It is so good to be back in the pulpit this morning on what is the first Sunday of September and the first Sunday of our new study, a study through the Gospel of Mark. However, before we begin the Gospel of Mark this morning, I just wanted to take a moment to thank my brothers, Alex and Ricardo, for their faithful preaching and exposition over the past three weeks. It is such a blessing to be able to go away, to get some rest, and to still know that the Word of God is being properly and faithfully proclaimed from this pulpit. So to Alex and Ricardo, thank you both for serving Jesus Christ and for serving his bride, the church, so well over these past three weeks. Now as for today, today is a big day because we are starting this morning a brand new study, a study through the gospel of Mark. A gospel, mind you, that although it does not name its author, it was written by a man named John Mark, a view that was unanimously held by the earliest of church fathers. Now, who exactly was this man named John Mark, you might be wondering? Well, John Mark, he literally traveled with the Apostle Paul on Paul's first missionary journey. And although Mark withdrew from Paul for a season of ministry, Paul still ended up considering Mark to be a fellow laborer of the gospel. And in fact, told Timothy in 2 Timothy 4.11 that he, John Mark, is very useful to me in ministry. However, despite Mark's relationship with the Apostle Paul... It was his relationship with the Apostle Peter that really makes this gospel punch. For the Apostle Peter wrote in 1 Peter 5.13 that this man named John Mark was his son, as in his spiritual son. And it is through this relationship, church, as many scholars have pointed out, including that of the first century church father, Papias, that Mark was in essence Peter's secretary, in that he diligently collected all of Peter's eyewitness accounts and testimonies about Jesus. Christ, and then with Peter's approval, use them to write and to craft this gospel. Therefore, what we are reading here, church, is the work of John Mark, who under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, carefully and accurately recorded the credible first-hand eyewitness accounts of the Apostle Peter concerning the perfect life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, when exactly did all of this take place, you might be wondering? Well, it seems most likely that Mark wrote his gospel sometime between the years of 60 and 70 A.D., or about 30 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he wrote his gospel, church, primarily to an audience made up of Romans. Romans, mind you, who had become Christians, but who were at this time in the history of the church facing extreme persecution. And the reason for this persecution was because the Roman emperor at the time, a man by the name of Nero, was in essence blaming the Christians for a massive fire that broke out and raged for six days throughout the city of Rome. Now we as contemporary Christians tend to think that we have it bad now. However, please make no mistake, brother Christian, sister Christian, for these first century Christians to whom Mark was writing to, they had it bad, like really bad. 
like really, really, really bad, for as R.C. Sproul noted, these first century Roman Christians literally had the Roman military chasing after them, and if they were arrested by said military, they were either likely killed by wild dogs in public display, fed to the lions in the Colosseum for entertainment, or simply ignited with fire used to eliminate Nero's private gardens. And thus it seems likely, church, that right after this great fire took place, when these Roman Christians were facing extreme persecution at the hands of Nero, likely around 65 AD, John Mark decided then to write to these persecuted Christians his gospel account of Jesus Christ in order to strengthen them in the faith that this Jesus, who they love, who they trust, and who they are literally dying for, truly is the suffering servant predicted by the prophets of old and thus is the Christ, the Messiah, and the eternal Son of God who came into this world to save sinners from their sin via his substitutionary atonement on the cross. Which takes us now, church, to our thesis statement this morning, or to the main theme of our sermon this morning, which is quite simply this. Jesus is the Christ and the eternal Son of God. Jesus is the Christ and the eternal Son of God. Therefore, at this time, church, let's open our Bibles up to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, where we will be looking at verses 1 through 8. And if you are joining us this morning and do not own a Bible, please know there is a Bible located in every chair in front of you this morning, which is our gift to you on this day. Meaning, if you do not own a Bible, please right now grab your brand new Bible out of any chair in front of you and turn to page 836 and join us as a church family as we hear the Word of God together this morning. Again, church, we are in the Gospel of Mark this morning, looking at chapter 1, verses 1 through 8, where Mark writes, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Father, help us this morning to understand what we are looking at. 
that we are looking this morning at the greatest story ever told about the greatest person who has ever walked this earth, a man who was truly God and truly man, who saved sinners from their sin. Father, help us to not see this gospel, this gospel of Mark as some mundane account of Jesus Christ that we have heard over and over and over again. But Lord, open our eyes to new insights, to grab hold to these dear promises that you have made to us through your Son, Jesus Christ, the one who offers us the gift of salvation. Father, open the eyes and the ears of this dear flock, I pray. If they need to be convicted this morning, convict them, Lord. And Father, help me this morning. Help my lisping, stammering tongue to communicate your word boldly, humbly, and above all else, truthfully and accurately to these dear people. Do this mighty work, we pray. Amen. Our first of two points this morning, church, is this. Point number one, Christian, it truly is good news that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Christian, it truly is good news that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Verse one, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So unlike the beginning of the gospel of Matthew, church. Mark here, he doesn't begin his gospel with a genealogy of Jesus. Nor like the beginning of Luke does Mark begin here with a foretelling about the birth of Jesus Christ or even a foretelling about the birth of John the Baptist. Instead, the beginning of Mark, it almost begins like the book of Genesis, which of course reads, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Therefore, it seems quite possible, church, that Mark here is recalling the beginning of Genesis or even imitating the beginning of Genesis in order to initially communicate to his readers that just as God was at work in the beginning when God created the heavens and the earth, that so too has God always been at work throughout redemptive history and that this message that they are about to read, that this good news that they are about to hear, that this is beginning of something new, of something big, and of something that is absolutely all-inspiring, for this is the beginning, church, of the greatest news that the world has ever received, for this is the beginning, verse 1, of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And Mark, he jumps right into this message, right into this narrative without focusing for a second on the genealogy of Jesus Christ or the foretelling of the birth of Jesus Christ or even the birth account of Jesus Christ. And he does so, church, because, as Daniel Aiken pointed out, Mark here, he simply wants to prove to his Roman audience that this Jesus really is the Christ, the Son of God, the one who served, suffered, died, and rose again as the suffering servant of the Lord depicted by the prophet Isaiah. Therefore, he simply doesn't need to inject some of the details or the accounts that a Jewish audience would have desired or needed to know. 
And thus it is for that reason that Mark just dives right in, verse 1, to the beginning of the gospel. Gospel as in a message of good news and a message of joyful tidings that the King of kings, that the Lord of lords, that the Messiah has finally come. The one who would crush the serpent's head, atone for the sins of the world, usher in a righteous nation, and establish a kingdom that would endure forever. And that promised one, church, that anointed one, that eternally victorious one, his name, verse 1, is Jesus Christ. Jesus as in Yahweh saves and Christ as in the Messiah, aka the one who would come from the line of David, establish a kingdom that would endure forever, sit on a throne that would last forever, and reign over a redeemed people forever and ever, Second Samuel chapter 7 and that God would be to him a father, and thus Jesus Christ would be then, verse 1, the very Son of God. Now, it is so critical for us here, church, to note this designation that Jesus is the Son of God. Because Mark here, he's not simply telling his readers again, as one scholar points out, that this man named Jesus is the Christ. But instead, when Mark uses this designation that Jesus is the Son of God, what Mark is communicating here is that although Jesus Christ did indeed come into this world as truly man, that he is also, verse 1, the Son of God, as in truly God as well. For as David Burgess shared, In the 4th century, Emperor Theodosius openly denied the deity of Jesus Christ. Nevertheless, when his son Arcadius was about to turn 16, he, Theodosius, made him an equal partner in the rule of his empire. And among the noblemen who assembled to congratulate him on this occasion was one of the local bishops. And the bishop on that day made a splendid address to the emperor, and was about to leave when Theodosius exclaimed, Do you not even take notice of my son? So the bishop then went up to Arcadius and putting his hands on his head said, The Lord bless you, my son. Now the emperor, roused with fury by this sight, exclaimed, Is this all the respect that you pay to the prince that I have made of equal dignity with myself? To which the bishop replied, Sir, you do so highly resent my apparent neglect for your son because I do not give him equal honors with yourself. However, what must the eternal God think of you? He who has allowed his co-equal and co-eternal son to be degraded of his proper divinity in every part of your empire. You see, church, when Mark says that Jesus is the Son of God. It is the complete, absolute, and exhaustive affirmation, as our articles of faith state, that Jesus is the eternal and true God, and that he is of one substance and equal with God the Father, in power and in glory. And thus, because Jesus Christ is of one substance and equal with God the Father, in power and in glory, he then can rightfully make the claim in John chapter 
chapter 8, that before Abraham was, I am. Or in John chapter 10, that I and the Father are one. Or in John chapter 14, that whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Or say to the invalid, get up. To say to Lazarus, come out. To say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven. Or to say to the disciples, to pray in my name. Because Jesus Christ is, church, truly the Son of God. And thus when the high priest bluntly asked him in Mark chapter 14, are you the Christ, Son of the Blessed, Son of God? Jesus can absolutely and boldly claim with all authority given to him on earth and in heaven that I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power coming with the clouds of heaven because that is who this man named Jesus Christ truly is, church. For he is God in the flesh who came into this world, born of the Virgin Mary from the lineage of David to save sinners from their sin by suffering in their place, living the life they couldn't live, paying the price they couldn't pay, and being raised from the dead. For that is church, the world-altering, life-changing, and eternally transforming message that is being communicated by Mark here to these Roman Christians and to Christians throughout the ages. Therefore, wake up this morning, church. Take heed and get ready to hear the message of salvation to everyone who believes, starring the God-man himself, Jesus Christ, the begotten Son of God who gave up his life as a ransom for many so that we may live eternally through him. Which brings us now to point number two, which is this. John the Baptist, the Messiah's faithful and humble forerunner. John the Baptist, the Messiah's faithful and humble forerunner. Verses 2 through 8. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So what we are initially seeing here in verses 2 and 3 which again read as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight, is Mark likely referencing three Old Testament texts. Those texts being Exodus 23, 20, which says, Behold, I send an angel before you, Malachi 3.1, which says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And of course, Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, the most significant of the three, which is why, makes the mention, why Mark makes the mention of it here in verse 2. 
Nevertheless, it reads, a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. And what Mark is doing here, church, is kind of uniting these three texts together in order to clearly showcase to his readers that there were prophecies of old spoken precisely about a messenger or a herald or a forerunner who God was going to send before the Messiah in order to prepare the way of the Lord. And that forerunner's name, church, it was none other than that of John the Baptist. Now, if there is one thing that I want you to remember today about this forerunner, about John the Baptist, it is this, that although there were prophecies about him some 700 years before he was even born, and although John the Baptist was the first prophet called by God following the completion of the Old Testament some 400 years after the words of the prophet Malachi, And although the angel Gabriel announced to his father, Zechariah, that John would be great before the Lord and go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah, this church, this is how John the Baptist saw himself and his ministry as it related to the Messiah, to Jesus Christ. For he put it this way in John chapter 3, that he, Jesus Christ, must increase and that I, John the Baptist, must decrease. For that was John's desire, his call, his role, and his goal throughout the the entirety of his life and throughout the entirety of his ministry, that Jesus Christ must increase and that he, John the Baptist, must decrease. And thus, verses 4 and 5, John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, and all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. For John had one thing in mind here, and it wasn't to see how he could grow his brand or increase his following, nor was it to see how he could expand his influence or gain more popularity, nor was it to see how he could get more likes on social media and be loved and adored by all, for it wasn't any of that church. Instead, John the Baptist was motivated and driven and determined to get people to see their sin, to acknowledge their sin, to confess their sin, and to ultimately turn back to God. And John the Baptist, he was doing this verse, this in verse 4, in the wilderness, not in some fancy church building, not with some fancy flashing lights, and not while wearing the latest fashion or the coolest and most expensive sneakers, but he did so instead, verse 6, clothed with camel's hair and wearing a leather belt around his waist, looking just like the prophet Elijah of old from 2 Kings chapter 1, and thus it is easy easy to see that John the Baptist is the fulfillment of the prophet Malachi's prophecies about a new Elijah or a metaphorical Elijah who was to come and prepare the way of the Lord. However, make no mistake here, church, because despite the fact, verse 5, that all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and being baptized by him in the river Jordan, That by no means meant that John's message was warmly received by all. For as John MacArthur notes, 
John the Baptist's call for Jews to be baptized, it was radical because it required the Jews to see themselves as outsiders who must acknowledge that they were no more fit for the Messiah's kingdom than that of the Gentiles. Therefore, John's baptism directly confronted the religious hypocrisy that permeated first century Judaism in that it challenged his listeners to consider the reality that they neither were, that being a physical descendant of Abraham or a fastidious observer of the law was enough for them to gain admittance into God's kingdom. So in essence, you have a guy here in John the Baptist who has been called to tell people that they are sinners and that their physical lineage won't save them, that their observation of the law won't save them, and that they will ultimately be judged for their sins unless they repent and turn back to God. And he, John the Baptist, he was faithful to deliver this message no matter what any Pharisee or Sadducee thought or said about him because it was his goal, church, above all else, to be faithful to God and thus prepare the way for the Messiah. A Messiah who John says in verses 7 and 8 is mightier than I. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And again, church, keep the context in mind here. Because as we just read in verse 5, all the country of Judea and Jerusalem were going out to see him. Therefore, how easy would it have been for John the Baptist to get a big head or an inflated ego or to begin to think that, yeah, I'm the man and not this Messiah. And yet through it all, church, John the Baptist continued to keep at the forefront of his mind that I must decrease and that he, the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, that he must ultimately increase. Because, verse 7, after me, after John comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. Which reminds me, church, of a story about the reformer Martin Luther, who when asked by someone, what is the first step of religion? Luther replied, humility. When asked, well then, what is the second step? Luther again said, humility. And thus, when asked for the third step of religion, Luther, of course, again replied with humility. And John the Baptist he got that, church. He understood that because he knew that all he could do was tell people that they were sinners and call them to repent and baptize them physically with water as a sign of their repentance. However, the one who was to come after him, the one whose sandals John was not worthy to bend down and untie, he, verse 8, could baptize with the Holy Spirit. And thus he, John the Baptist knew, as Michael Wilkins points out, that his baptism would be superseded by the Messiah's, and that only those who truly repented of their sins and placed their faith in the Messiah for the forgiveness of their sins, only they would receive the blessing of the Holy Spirit, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and ultimately the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And that, church, is how I want to wrap up point number two this morning. Because too many self-professing Christians out there today believe that since they repeated a certain prayer when they were a child 
or walked down a certain aisle when they were a child or were baptized in some water as a child, that they now somehow have automatically been saved and possess the Spirit of God without ever confessing their sins, repenting of their sins, and placing their faith in Jesus Christ to forgive them of their sins. And that right there, church, is a big, big problem. Therefore, the question I have for you this morning, church, is not, have you ever been dunked into a pool of water? Nor is it, have you ever repeated the words of your Sunday school teacher? Nor is it, have you ever raised your hand or walked down an aisle during an altar call? For the question that I must ask each and every one of you this morning is, have you ever truly repented of your sins and placed your faith in Jesus Christ and in Christ alone as the only one who can forgive you of your sins, cleanse you of your sins, redeem you from your sins, and reconcile you back into fellowship with God forever? For quite simply, it all comes down to this church. For are you trusting in some bath you took, some words you repeated, or some work you did, or are you trusting exclusively, absolutely, and completely this morning in the atoning, sacrificial, justifying work of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who came into this world to save sinners like you from their sins? Therefore, as we close this morning, I will begin with the non-Christian who was here first. AKA, I will begin with the individual who knows that they have not repented of their sins and placed their faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins and for their reconciliation back to God forever. And non-Christian, please know, I desperately want to communicate and convey and share this section of my sermon well to you this morning. Because make no mistake, this morning, non-Christian, you are indeed a sinner. For you are dead in your sins. You have been depraved from the time you were conceived in your mother's womb. And in your current state, you are indeed an enemy of the Most High God. For your sins, non-Christian, they have separated you from God, united you with the world, and are leading you down a path toward eternal condemnation. For those are the facts that are sitting before you this morning, non-Christian. However, I'm not going to tell you, or I am not only going to tell you, non-Christian, that you are a sinner, that you need to repent, and that you deserve the righteous judgment of God. But I am also going to tell you about the divine grace that is also available to you on this very day. That grace being that God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, into the world and not to judge the world, non-Christian, but in order to save it. And he, Jesus Christ, did it by breaking into this world as truly God and as truly man and by living for you, non-Christian, the life that you could never live, meaning the law that you break over and over and over again each day, Jesus Christ, he did not break it once. Instead, he, Jesus Christ, fulfilled all righteousness for mankind, and that the life he lived here on earth was perfect and sinless and righteous and good, and thus he perfectly and completely kept the entire law of God non-Christian, and he did it for the children of God. However, not only did Jesus Christ keep the law of God for the children of God, 
but he also became a ransom for many meaning the price that we owed for our sins, the debt that we needed to pay for our sins, that being that of death. Jesus Christ, he willingly paid that price on our behalf by being crucified on a cross at Calvary and dying a sinner's death in our very place. I mean, think of it this way, non-Christian. The sinless, perfect, righteous Son of God, he willingly gave up his life in the place of sinful man as a substitute for sinners like you as a substitute for sinners like me however because jesus christ was truly sinless and perfect and righteous and without any offense sin and death then they had no claim over him or power over him and thus literally couldn't keep the sinless son of god dead therefore three days later jesus christ he rose from the dead and non-christian he conquered sin and he destroyed death and he now offers eternal life to all who place their trust in him therefore non-christian let today be the day that you turn from your sins. Let today be the day that you repent of your sins and you place your trust in Jesus Christ and in Christ alone as the only one who can forgive you of your sins, as the only one who paid the price for your sins, who died for your sins and can clothe you then in his perfect life in his righteousness and reconcile you back to God forever. Therefore, let today be the day, non-Christian, that you place your trust in Jesus Christ, and I can promise you, today will be the day that you will be forgiven of your sins and given the gift of eternal life. And to the Christian who was here this morning, Brother Christian, Sister Christian, I was a bit torn this week in terms of how I wanted to close this sermon. For I initially thought about closing with a call for humility and for us to emulate the humility of John the Baptist and his desire to see himself decrease and that of Jesus Christ increase in all areas of his life. And then I also dabbled with the idea of encouraging us as a church body to remain faithful like John the Baptist in calling this world to repent and in continually displaying to this same world the beauty that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. However, I actually punted on both of those points of application and instead decided as one who has been called to keep watch over your souls, as one who will give an account, to exhort you all this morning to take a moment and to reflect on your testimony of faith. To take a moment and to consider the state of your own heart. To take a moment and to probe and inspect and examine if you really have been born again. And the reason why I want to close this way, church, is because if you were to ask all those droves and droves and droves of people from Judea and Jerusalem highlighted in verse 5 if their repentance was authentic, if their baptism was credible, if their testimony is true, I am sure each and every one of them in that moment would have said with a resounding yes. That yes, it was real, that yes, it was genuine, that yes, it was authentic, and that yes, they had absolutely turned from their sins and turned back to God. And yet, church, just a couple years later, 
as John Bunyan points out in his book, The Jerusalem Sinner Saved, it was the very people of Jerusalem, likely some of which, mind you, who went out to be baptized by John the Baptist, who were then mocking Jesus, railing against Jesus, spitting on Jesus, and chanting, crucify, crucify Jesus. Jesus shared this parable in Matthew chapter 13. He said, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that has been thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. And when it was full, men drew it ashore, sat down, and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Brother Christian, Sister Christian, simply because a fish is brought up in the net, that does not mean that the fish will be kept. Similarly, just because an individual is brought up in the church, baptized in the church, becomes a member of the church, teaches Sunday school in the church, and serves in different capacities at the church, nor does that mean that that individual will enter the kingdom of heaven because only those church who have truly repented of their sins and placed their faith in Jesus Christ as the Son of God will enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, members at Faith Bible Fellowship Church, regular attenders at Faith Bible Fellowship Church, visitors, watchers online, and whoever else you may be this morning, let me lovingly exhort you at this time to probe and examine and inspect your hearts for true repentance and for true faith in the Son of God in Jesus Christ. Because anyone, and please hear me this morning, church, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. Romans chapter 8. Therefore, does the Spirit of Christ dwell in you today? For have you repented of your sins, trusted in the atoning work of Jesus Christ, and have you been born again? For those are the questions that you must, must, must ask yourself this morning, church, because your answer to those questions, they will determine your eternity. Thus, it is my prayer that we as a church body can answer those questions with a resounding yes, that we as a church body repent of our sins, turn from our sins, hate our sins, and place our faith in Jesus Christ and in Christ alone as the only one who can forgive us of our sins. However, Lord, we recognize that faith, it is not a team sport and that our faith needs to be our own. Therefore, if there is a member of this congregation this morning, Lord, a faithful congregant who comes week in and week out, who believes that they were saved because they walked a certain aisle when they were younger or repeated a certain prayer when they were a kid but have not repented and placed their faith in you, Lord, convict them of this this morning and draw them to yourself, I pray, and that they feel the weight of their sin and 
call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ in order to be saved. And that they walk out of here this morning no longer relying on their baptism as a child when they were washed physically, but instead they walk out of here this morning relying solely on the work of Jesus Christ, the one who will wash them spiritually. Therefore, do this mighty and supernatural work that only you can do, Father. And do it, we pray, for the good of your church, for the good of Faith Bible Fellowship Church, and for your eternal glory. Let's pray.